Welcome to Finish Well Homeschooling Podcast, where changing the world starts with changing the home, with your host, Meredith Curtis. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Finish Well Podcast. This is episode 138, My Favorite Founding Mothers and Fathers. Now, I am so excited that we're going to talk about this because some of the people that I'm going to talk about, you may not even really know much about. So I'm really excited to tell you about them. And I am really excited with 4th of July around the corner. Now you can listen to this anytime. So if you're listening to this later, don't let that stop you. But it's just so wonderful to celebrate and remember the American Revolution. I love our nation. I love our country. And I feel like we have such an amazing heritage. And I just want to pass that joy on to you. The American Revolution was one by freedom-loving patriots. They resisted tyranny after decades of patient negotiating. They worked hard. They loved their families. They read their Bibles. They went to church. And they poured their lives into a cause bigger than themselves. You wouldn't find them saying, oh, I need to be fulfilled. They were busy. They were busy living life and, and caring for people and valuing freedom. So I want you to meet just a few of these. These are just a very few. And there's so many other wonderful men and women I want you to meet. But for today, we're just going to talk about a few and we're going to start with the founding mothers. Of course, I have to start with Abigail Adams. She was the first second lady married to the vice president. He was her husband, John Adams, was George Washington's vice president. And she was the second first lady because John Adams was the president after George Washington. I just love her because she spoke her mind. And I tend to be a person who does that. So I'm just kind of drawn to her. Abigail was brilliant. And she advised her husband throughout his whole career. And honestly, it was a very prestigious career. She was a devoted wife and mother, and she often took children under her wing that weren't her own children. She took the daughter of President Thomas Jefferson under her wing, and she really cared for her. She was just a really neat lady. She was born into a pastor's family in Massachusetts and was homeschooled. She was very smart. She was opinionated and she was super practical. She wasn't like a pie in the sky person. She wasn't idealistic. She was like, John, here's the bottom line. What about this? And what about this? And you know, of course, they're famous. Remember the ladies. She married John Adams. He was a country lawyer. And they were blessed with six children. Four made it to adulthood. Now, why do I say that? Because back in those days, parents faced the death of their children all the time or even the death of one another. It was just a very different time. We're so blessed in the world we live in. Yes, there are parents who face death. But Every family was usually touched by at least one death, and it's just very, very challenging time to live in. 
Her husband traveled quite a bit because of his role in the American Revolution. He was part of the Constitutional Convention, and they sent him as an ambassador to different places. And so they wrote a lot of letters, and their letters are really delightful to read, not only because of the the really sweet, tender love between them, but for Abigail's wit and strong opinions of how things should be done. She had a huge impact on the nation through her husband, John, and also through her son, John Quincy Adams, who really respected his mom. He was the sixth president of the United States. So she was both a wife of a president and a mother of a president. Abigail took a really active role in politics when her husband was elected president. She held a large dinner in their home each week for all kinds of guests. They got to know the people that they were serving as president and first lady. And every year she planned the 4th of July celebration. She appeared so frequently in public and she was so active in government that her enemies called her Mrs. President. And also, while she was in the White House helping her husband and doing so much stuff, there were several children whose fathers were alcoholics and they were living in poverty because of that, that she ended up moving into her house. And so the White House was filled with these children who needed Abigail's loving, tender care. So that's Abigail Adams. And now I want you to meet Martha. Martha was the complete opposite of Abigail. She was intensely private. She was really more concerned about her husband and caring for her husband and making sure he was okay. She was actually crazy about her husband, George Washington. Martha was born on a wealthy plantation, and she married a very rich man, Daniel Park Curtis. He was 20 years older than her. By the time she was 25, so she married him when she was 18. By the time she was 25, she had four children, and she was a widow. Her husband died, and she was, there she was with four children. She was very wise and very hardworking, and she ran the five, not one, not two, the five plantations her husband left behind. It wasn't too long before she fell in love with a dashing young officer, and of course you know who he is, George Washington, and after honeymooning for several weeks, they moved to the Washington plantation, Mount Vernon. Now, two of her four children died very early, and Patsy died during her teens, so only her son, John Park Custis, made it to adulthood. And that was very hard for her because she was really, like I said, she was a family woman. Like her devotion was to her family. She felt that was her calling. She was an intensely devoted Christian. And so God's grace helped her to get through that. He got married and then her son served in the Revolutionary War. But during the Revolutionary War, he died of typhus. Isn't that sad? So all like... She outlived all four of her children, which is, I can't imagine, that must be so hard. But what happened was his widow remarried, and it ended up being awkward. And so George and Martha took Jackie's two children, and they ended up raising Nellie and George Washington Park Custis. So 
they ended up having their grandchildren to raise, even though they lost their children. And their grandchildren were really a blessing. They were also very generous and kind to their family, to George Washington's mom, to their nieces and nephews. Every winter during the Revolutionary War, Martha joined her husband. She overcame her shy nature to follow his dreams and and sense of duty. So she was ended up in the spotlight but in a very, very quiet way. So you can imagine, here's intensely private Martha Washington, followed by intensely gregarious Abigail Adams. So that's probably why some people did not like Abigail, because they just, like Martha, had kind of set the pace. As First Lady, Martha was kind and gracious, even though she was very quiet. But really where Martha shined was at Mount Vernon. Throughout her lifetime when they were living at Mount Vernon, she was such a gracious and loving hostess. And she provided delicious food, a warm environment, and plenty of good conversation. She managed the estate when George was away, and she was his biggest fan. George really chose wisely in marrying Martha. And, you know, George was George Washington was a very quiet person, too. So they were just a very humble, God-fearing couple. I just love them both so much. Anyway, Eliza Lucas Pickney is the next woman I want to talk to you about. And Abigail was from Massachusetts. And Martha was from Virginia. Eliza was from South Carolina. And you are going to find out some neat things about her. She was the mother of a signer of the Constitution and a candidate for president. And she was the mother of her son Thomas negotiated Pickney's Treaty in 1795 to protect U.S. navigation rights on the Mississippi River. And her husband, well, I'll tell you more about her husband later. But so she didn't necessarily play a huge role in the actual governmenting and fighting of the American Revolution, but she did play a really key part. And, of course, her husband and sons did. So she developed indigo as an important crop in colonial South Carolina, and I'm going to tell you how that all happened. You see, she grew up in Antigua in the Caribbean and on a sugar cane plantation for wealthy colonists, they would send their children to complete their education at a boarding school. Well, she went to London, and while she was in London at this boarding school, her very favorite subject was botany. Now, when she got back, her father inherited three plantations in South Carolina, and they decided to move the family over to those three plantations. So even they left the sugarcane plantation in Antigua under a supervisor's care, and they came to South Carolina. So as soon as that happened, her father had to take a business trip to Antigua. Now, it wasn't like today, bye, honey, I'm flying across the Atlantic Ocean, I'll be back in three days. It, It wasn't like that. It was usually, if you had to take a business trip, it was a long way over, a long way back, And people were usually gone for months and sometimes years. So this dad left Eliza to manage three different plantations, a tar plantation, a timber plantation, and a rice plantation. Her younger siblings were all at boarding school in London. So she was it. She was the man, well, the woman. So 
she did that very, very well. And while she was there, she began experimenting with different crops. She experimented with ginger, with cotton, with alfalfa, with hemp, with indigo. And soon she had a successful crop of indigo, which indigo can be used as a dye. And she shared her seed with other plantation owners so that soon many, many people were growing indigo. Now, Eliza ended up falling in love with a widower from a neighboring plantation. His name was Charles Pickney, and she married him, and and they had five children. Three survived to adulthood. Charles became very involved in South Carolina politics. He was the Speaker of the Commons House of Assembly, so he would go to Charleston. That's her husband. And when, while he worked hard with politics, Eliza was planting these beautiful gardens and corresponding with botanists from England. Well, here's what I'm growing. Here's what I'm doing. I just want you to know this is something unique about America. So she just had a huge part of adding to the wealth of information about botany. In 1758, Charles died. And as a young widow, Eliza had to manage several plantations and stay connected with all her friends and family across the colonies. When she died in 1793, George Washington served as a pallbearer at her funeral. Eliza was part of a bustling political family, but she managed to use her love of botany to bless South Carolina with a cash crop that would produce money to fund the American Revolution. Isn't that interesting? So here she is. She's a botanist. She likes plants. Well, what could she ever... What role could she play in the American Revolution? Well, she provided a cash crop that ended up funding the American Revolution. I mean, especially for South Carolina. So I call that a very successful home business. That is Eliza. And I really, really, I really like her. I think she's a neat lady. The next person I want you to meet is Molly Pitcher. And her name was Mary Ludwig Hayes. She fought in the battle of Monmouth in the American Revolution, and she's just kind of your average American colonist. She was born into a German butcher's family in Trenton, New Jersey, and she married William Hayes, a barber from Pennsylvania. So here's this New Jersey girl. She marries a barber from Pennsylvania, and of course, William had to enlist in the Continental Army, and Molly said, I'm coming. So she was there at Valley Forge where many women, remember I told you that Martha would go visit her husband during the winter. Now, William trained to be an artillery man, and Molly would go onto the battlefield, and she would carry water to the soldiers. Well, this is what happened one day in June 1778. Molly was carrying water to the soldiers in the midst of the battle, and William was wounded in battle and carried off the field. So what did Molly do? Did she go running after him weeping? Nope. You know what she did? She said, okay, I've been watching him do this for months. And she took his place loading the cannon. (laughs) She was so in the middle of the action that a musket ball which is a cannonball, actually flew right between her legs, tearing the bottom off her skirt. But she kept loading that cannon and shooting it. 
General George Washington was so impressed with her that he made her a non-commissioned officer, and he gave her the nickname Sergeant Molly. <laughs> so that is Molly Pitcher, and she's just a feisty great lady. They went on, of course, to have a family. The next person I want you to meet is Elizabeth Hamilton. Elizabeth was very wealthy, and her father was a general and a devoted Christian. He was a general in in the, the Continental Army, and he was a devoted Christian. They were part of the Dutch Reformed Church. Elizabeth grew up with a great devotion to the Lord, and she really wanted God to use her. When she was a little girl, she went with her father to the meeting of the Six Nations. The Six Nations were a group of Native American tribes. They formed a confederacy. And she got to go to that meeting with her dad and see these great men interact and make decisions. She also met Benjamin Franklin because he was a guest in the home she grew up in. One day, she went to Morristown, New Jersey to visit, and she met one of George Washington's very handsome aide-de-camps. And his name was Alexander Hamilton. They had a whirlwind courtship. So she didn't really know him that well. And he asked for her hand in marriage. After a brief honeymoon, she followed Alexander into his duties as an officer in the American Revolution. She helped him with all of his political writings. And when you go back and you see them, you'll find a lot of them are in her handwriting. So she definitely acted as his secretary, but most likely she was also a strong advisor in the whole process of his writings. They had eight children, and Eliza, like Abigail, took in other children to raise, and like Martha and George did too, took in other children to raise too. She, she had a friend that was widowed, and she raised that daughter. She and Alexander hosted many parties and worked very hard to get the Constitution ratified after the American Revolution was over. They would stay up till the wee hours of the morning. So she probably wrote at least half of the Federalist Papers that Alexander wrote. She also had a burden for orphans. In 1804, her husband had a duel with Aaron Burr. And soon afterward, she lost both of her parents. Now, Alexander, we really respect as part of the American Revolution, but I have to tell you that he had so much debt that when he died, she had to sell almost all their property, including her house. And then she decided, you know what, I'm going to open an orphanage. And so she served as director of the New York Orphan Asylum Society for 27 years. She lived to the age of 97, and she spent the rest of her life as a widow serving orphans and honoring her husband's memory. Elizabeth Hamilton played a huge part in the Constitution and other federal policies. She also spearheaded the American tradition of charity and philanthropy. So we have her to thank for her generous heart that so many people over the years have imitated her. The last woman I'm going to talk about is Dolly Madison. Dolly Madison, if you met her in person, you were likely to say, 
Dolly is so cute, and she was. She was bubbly and happy, and she made everyone have fun by just being around her. She was the wife of President James Madison, and when we think of her, we usually remember that she was the one who decorated the new White House in Washington, D.C., and when the British burned it down during the War of 1812, she rescued some really fine artwork, including the painting of President George Washington. When Dolly was younger, she grew up in a Quaker family and was raised on a plantation in Virginia. After the War of Independence... The American Revolution was over and the America won. She and her family freed all their slaves. Then Dolly married a man named John Todd and they lived in Philadelphia and John was a lawyer. They had two sons, but everyone in her family died except for Dolly and her son John. Eventually, Dolly fell in love with James Madison, but he was a lot older than she was. And James was not a Quaker, so Dolly had to leave. She had to leave the Society of Friends, and she joined the Episcopal Church with James. They stayed in Philadelphia while James was a representative in the brand-new Congress. In 1800, President Thomas Jefferson became the third president of the United States, and James Madison became the new Secretary of State. So Dolly was off to the brand new capital in Washington, D.C. Let me tell you this. Dolly took Washington, D.C. by storm. She was such a charming hostess, and she was such an engaging friend. People loved her and enjoyed her hospitality, and she really helped make her husband popular, and it probably one of the few times they would say, oh yeah, that's Dolly Madison's husband, James. <laughs> she was just so cute and so funny, and she loved people, and she loved hostessing. She did a lot of hostessing for Thomas Jefferson, and she also did, of course, hostessing when her husband was president as well. Dolly brought life and joy wherever she went, and she is the only first lady. Now listen to this. She had an honorary seat in Congress. She is probably the most popular hostess Washington, D.C. has ever seen. So I really, really, I really would love to have met her in person because she was just so bubbly and so fun. But she was, you know, quick-witted enough to save important things for the future and and that's so important it's so important that we hold on to our history now speaking of history i want to take a moment and just tell you about some resources that we have we have a series called learn history the fun way and we have several american history resources and if as i'm talking you're thinking oh wow American history, what would be fun to, what would be some fun ways to study American history? Well, we have an American t history timeline, and the, the timeline figures are just beautiful. There are timeline pages and timeline figures, and you can make a beautiful timeline. And it, I love timelines because they give kids such a bird's eye view of history. Another thing we have is an art appreciation course and with beautiful paintings and some really absolutely wonderful American artists that you can learn about and that you can learn to appreciate 
paintings by looking at the color, the composition, the focal point, and all these different things. And they're guided questions for all the different paintings like Norman Rockwell, Winslow Homer, Gilbert, and Thomas Cole, just some, just some amazing artists. And it doesn't matter what curriculum you're using because you can just fit the lessons in there to the time period that you're studying. So another thing that we have is Americana newspaper reporting. And that's a middle school English class about newspaper writing. And what's so cool is that newspapers played such a big part in our history. So they learn a little bit about American history and read historical fiction set in American history, of course, throughout the course. So that's another fun way to learn about American history. And finally, our last resource is an American history cookbook. And each chapter has a section about just a very brief summary of American history from that time period. And then it goes on and you just have all these wonderful recipes that are things that they cooked back then, but we've updated them to make them really easy for your kitchen. So I just wanted you to know if you're interested in American history resources and you want to teach the fun way, go to powerlineprod.com to the shop and you can look for that, Teach History the Fun Way, or you can just look up the titles, but I hope you'll really, really enjoy. And if you have the show notes, this is episode 138, you can see at the very bottom of the show notes are these books, and you can just click on them and go right to the page and learn more about it. Well, I want to get back now. (laughs) I want to get back to the Founding Fathers. And my very first Founding Father that I just have to share about is Patrick Henry. I don't know if it's because he's the father of 17 children or if it's because he's a devout follower of Jesus Christ or if it's because of his give me liberty or give me death speech, which when I read the whole speech, I always cry. But I love Patrick Henry. He's considered the father of the Bill of Rights, and he really stirred up the Virginians with his give me liberty or give me death speech. But underneath it all, Patrick Henry was a very devoted Christian, a very devoted husband and father. He was a delegate to the First and Second Continental Congress, but he opposed the Constitution, and this is why. He felt it would create a huge monstrosity that would trample on state rights and individual rights. So he wrote a lot of the anti-federalist papers to newspaper editors and said, hey, you need to be careful of this. You need to be careful of this. He wanted to stick with the Articles of Confederation. But this is what happened. As soon as the Constitution was ratified, he didn't say, well, I'm taking my marbles and going home. He was elected as a representative from Virginia, and he worked really, really hard to get the Bill of Rights passed. And so we can, you know, so often when we think of the Constitution, we think of freedom of the press. We think of freedom of religion. We think of the the right to bear arms. And all of those things come from the Bill of Rights. So anyway, the Constitution did lay out our government. It's an awesome document. But the Bill of Rights, wow, I'm so glad those first 10 amendments were added. So we can really thank Patrick Henry and others like Thomas Jefferson, who worked really hard to get the Bill of Rights passed. 
He was offered positions in Washington and Adams' cabinet, you know, the first two presidents. But Patrick Henry really loved his home state. And so after serving as a U.S. representative, he served as the governor of Virginia, and he served for five terms. One thing that I love is that his give me liberty or give me death speech, the whole one, is filled with quotes from the Old and New Testament. He would read the Bible for hours at a time, and he urged Americans, don't get caught up in deism. It's not like God just created us and left us to fend for ourselves. God is involved in every aspect of our life. And he said, flee from atheism. There is a God who loved you. So he really didn't just practice his faith privately. He was very vocal about calling people to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. He loved America. He loved America. And he gave his life to her service. And so in my mind, he's a real hero. Now, I... I just, here's another American hero that I love, and that's George Washington. And honestly, I, I think I've already given an entire podcast on George Washington. So you can look for that podcast if you'd like. And he is just one of my very favorite heroes. I love his character. I love his humility. I love the way he honored his mom. Did you know that George Washington wanted to be a sea captain? But his mom said, please don't do that. I would be so worried that you would drown at sea. I would be so worried that something would happen to you. And so he honored his mom. Now, can you imagine if George Washington had been a sea captain, who would have led the Continental Army? Who would have been the first president of the United States? And so God, in his sovereignty, worked through this humble man by having him honor his mom. I just am so amazed that a grown man would honor his mom that way. He became the commander-in-chief, of course, of the Revolutionary Army. He presided over the Constitutional Convention, and he became the first president of the United States. But you know what? When George thought about himself, he always considered himself a farmer, and he loved caring for his beloved Mount Vernon. He felt as the owner of this big farm that it was important for him to be involved in local politics and government. George Washington was very moral. He had so much virtue and he was very quiet, but he was always polite and kind to people. One of the things that I love, he had a little notebook that he made when he was a young man in his teens, I believe, and he just wrote his own rules of conduct. I'm I'm not going to talk with my mouth full. I'm going to rise when ladies are in the room and and full of biblical, biblical, moral upright ways to interact with people and care for them and so he he just he not only prayed and there's so many stories about like there's this one story about him visiting a family and they could hear him every morning getting up and they would you know hear him praying and so he he not only prayed he not only read the word every day But he was a man who lived such a virtuous life. When he was a young man, there were skirmishes with the Indians and French, and George Washington was asked to lead men into the 
into Western Virginia to push the French back. And he was a hero in battle. He was so brave. In one battle, he had two horses shot out from underneath him, but he still continued fighting to the end. During the Revolutionary War, his men loved him. He was very loved by his men and his officers, his enlisted men. They were all devoted to him. He led his troops through very hard times. They almost starved to death at Valley Forge. But when they won the war, he was very committed to making sure that this new nation got off to a good start. And when he took his oath of office as president of the United States, the first capital, I don't know if you knew this, but the first capital was in New York. And then it moved to Philadelphia and then again to Washington, D.C. So because he was a man who was very kind and very humble and he really valued relationships, his cabinet was truly a mix of very different ideas. He had both John Adams, who was that strong Federalist at one extreme, and Thomas Jefferson, a strong anti-Federalist, on the other extreme. They were in his cabinet. He just, he was able to lead a group of very different men to work together. And he is a true American hero. I just love George Washington. Our next hero is John Hancock. John Hancock was minding his own business until Sam Adams got a hold of him. And I'm going to talk about Sam Adams yet next. Samuel Adams got John all excited about liberty, and they became Sons of Liberty. And, of course, if you know about the Boston Tea Party, you know that John and Samuel were up to their eyeballs in the planning of the Boston Tea Party. And so <laughs> he was, he was, in fact... Well, I won't get into that history lesson because I've got to tell you about more heroes, but we'll get into John and Sam's escapades in another podcast. John served in the First Continental Congress and he was president. I don't know if, I don't know if you knew this. He was president of the Second Continental Congress. When they signed the Declaration of Independence, which is what we celebrate on the 4th of July, the signing of the Declaration of Independence, he is He's remembered when you look at the declaration or a copy of it, you see his big, beautiful flourish, his signature, and he signed his name super big. And then he said, there, I guess King George can read this without his spectacles. He is reported to have, that's what they, they wrote down that he said as he added his signature. He served as the governor of Massachusetts for nine terms. He shared Patrick Henry and Richard Henry Lee's concerned, uh, concerns about the Constitution, and so he helped to write some of the Anti-Federalist papers. And again, the Anti-Federalists, like the people that were concerned about the Constitution, helped get the Bill of Rights passed. And so it was very important to have two different viewpoints on that, because what would our Constitution be like without the Bill of Rights? Throughout his lifetime, John Hancock was a generous man, and people really admired him for his kindness. Here is a quote from him, and I'll leave you with this, but it just kind of gives you insight into what kind of man he was. Resistance to tyranny becomes the Christian and social duty of each individual. Continue steadfast and with a proper sense of your dependence on God, Nobly defend those rights which heaven gave, 
and no man ought to ever take away from us. So isn't that awesome? He just, you know, even though he was a fireball, well, and Samuel was more of a fireball, he was so dependent on God. He realized his dependence on God. Now, Samuel Adams was a rabble rouser and an instigator of trouble for his enemies. Samuel Adams had really strong opinions, (laughs) and he shared them boldly. He founded the Sons of Liberty and Boston's Committee of Correspondence. I don't know. Boston's Committee of (laughs) Correspondence was basically whenever England did anything that really ticked Samuel off, he would fire off a letter. I can't believe he did this. This is blah, blah, blah. And he would just write these long letters. He helped plan the Boston Tea Party and as well as he made a stockpile of weapons for future use by the Continental Army. And when the British found out he had done that, and it was soon after the the Boston Tea Party, they came looking for him. So, you know, he did, (laughs) he did really help instigate the start of the American Revolution. Samuel Adams served in the First Continental Congress. He signed the Declaration of Independence, and he helped to draft the Articles of Confederation. He served as President of the Massachusetts Senate, Lieutenant Governor, and Governor. Wherever he went, (laughs) this is the truth, Samuel stirred up controversy in his fight for liberty. He was a character But underneath it all, he trusted in the finished work of Christ. This is what he wrote in his last will and testament. Principally and first of all, I resign my soul to the almighty being who gave it, and my body I commit to the dust, relying on the merits of Jesus Christ for the pardon of my sins. Isn't that so beautiful? There we have it. Just bold and brazen. Now John Quincy Adams. Wow. John Quincy Adams was part of the American Revolution as a teenager. And that is so impressive to me because I, I just, he, he served alongside of his dad. Let me tell you about him. So he, he watched the Battle of Bunker Hill from his family farm. And then he traveled all around the world with his father, John. He basically grew up not with his dad in public service, but being in public service at the age of 14. Now, by the age of 14, he's already been serving his dad. Congress appointed John Quincy Adams to serve as secretary to the ambassador of Russia. At the age of 26, he was appointed minister to the Netherlands. He was elected as a senator at the age of 35. He served as secretary of state under President James Monroe, He helped to purchase Florida and to formulate the Monroe Doctrine. He served as president for one term, and when he wasn't reelected, you know what he decided to do? You're right. He retired to Florida and played golf. No, he didn't. He didn't. He decided to be a representative, and for the rest of his life, he served as a U.S. representative in Washington, D.C. What I like best about John Quincy Adams is that he loved Jesus and valued his word. He was a member of the American Bible Society, expressed his faith everywhere he went, and even wrote a hymn. Every day he read two to five chapters in the Bible in the original Hebrew and Greek. Can you even imagine? Wow. He spoke out strongly for the divinity of Christ, 
urging those who were flirting with false doctrine to lay it aside. So I don't know if you know, but that's kind of when some denominations were getting underway that were rejecting the deity of Christ. They were saying Jesus isn't God. But John Quincy Adams says, no, no, this is not true. The Bible says that Jesus is God, and I believe that. This is a quote from him. Knowing that unless the Lord keeps the city, the watchmen wake but in vain, with fervent supplications for his favor, to his overruling providence, I commit with humble but fearless confidence in my own fate and the future destinies of my country. So, I have one more to tell you about, and this is Richard Henry Lee. Richard Henry Lee was another statesman from Virginia. I know, it seems like they all come from Virginia. James Madison, John Monroe, George Washington, Patrick Henry, what Virginia or Massachusetts, but that's not true. They were, they were from every colony. But Richard Henry Lee was the one who stood up in the Second Continental Congress, and he said, Resolved that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, and they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, that all political connections between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be dissolved. In other words, Richard Henry Lee is the one who stood up and said, hey, we've negotiated long enough. They are not going to give us, they are not going to honor our God-given rights. Let's be free from Great Britain. And that was a bold, bold step to take. And that's the kind of man Richard Henry Lee was. Richard Henry Lee served in the First and Second Continental Congress. He served in the Virginia House of Burgesses. And he was elected the first president of the United States before the Constitution was ratified. So uh, he was the first president of the Congress under the Articles of Confederation. So we really should know about him. Like Patrick Henry, he had concerns about the Constitution. But once it was ratified, he went to Washington, D.C., elected to go, and he championed the Bill of Rights. He was elected as the first United States Senator from Virginia. He spent his life serving his state and country, and he worked tirelessly for freedom through legal channels. I hope that what I've done by telling you about these amazing women and men is to whet your appetite to learn more about our founding fathers and founding mothers and the rich heritage we have as Americans. Guys, we are so blessed. And we may be hearing some weird things from people and even on the television, but the truth is... Our country is founded by so many of the men and women who tirelessly gave their lives, were devoted Christians, who read the Bible and put their faith into action. We have such a rich heritage. And as we move forward, we'll never be a perfect nation. But as we move forward, we definitely want to walk as Men and women devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ, devoted to reading the word and praying that God will grant favor to America. God bless you and God bless the USA.
Thank you for listening to Finish Well Homeschooling Podcast with Meredith Curtis and the Finish Well team. Please listen in every first and third Monday of each month at 7 p.m. Eastern Time here at the Ultimate Homeschool Podcast Network.